I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. If you were living in the 1960s, you would have witnessed the Americans entering into one of the most polarizing conflicts in their entire history. A war triggered by an imaginary event, fought because of very real anxieties over the spread of an opposing ideology, and eventually leading to the social fragmentation of American society. Often forgotten or overlooked in the Western historical narrative is that over one million Vietnamese died in this conflict. Hindsight, however, is always 2020, and in the early 1960s, nobody had any idea of the cost that would soon be paid. Unbeknownst to most of the public, behind the scenes, there were frantic activities to try and de-escalate the growing tension between the U.S. and North Vietnam. Canada was at the very center of it, desperately trying to avoid a war and limit the potential for escalation into a broader global conflict between two nuclear superpowers. This is Season 5, Episode 19, A Lost Cause, Canada's Diplomatic Involvement in the Vietnam War. Today's book recommendation is by author Victor Levant. It's titled Quiet Complicity, Canadian Involvement in the Vietnam War. Uh, This was published in 1986 by University of Toronto Press. And while this is an older book than ones I normally recommend, Levant's manuscript is still considered the go-to academic source for Canada's Vietnam experience and well worth the read for anyone interested in Canada's role during this tumultuous period. So what today is known as Vietnam, or more accurately, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, was once part of a larger region within the French imperial sphere known as French Indochina. French Indochina was essentially the area that makes up the modern-day countries of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. During the Second World War, 
The colony was jointly occupied by Vichy France, that was the Nazi puppet regime running France after 1940, and the Japanese, who had been steadily expanding their imperial control over much of Asia. Effectively, Vichy France was allowed to continue running the colony, while the Japanese had a free hand to its resources, stripping the country in order to support the Japanese military. Within French Indochina, however, there were a combination of various groups that sought to resist this occupation. Many of them, unsurprisingly, were supported, trained, and armed by the Allies. One of the most prominent resistant organizations was the Viet Minh, led by Ho Chi Minh. The Viet Minh began active resistance operations in 1941, and while at first the organization included a broad spectrum of nationalists and political ideologies, as the war progressed, the Viet Minh became more and more controlled by communists. When the Japanese finally retreated from Indochina in the summer of 1945, a massive power vacuum existed, and the region descended into anarchy with various resistance groups all vying for power and control. The Viet Minh were ultimately successful in the north part of the country, occupying the capital of Hanoi and declaring an independent Vietnam. The new French government, Vichy France having already been toppled, was not willing to let go of their former colony. The Viet Minh's declaration of independence thus sparked the First Indochina War, as the newly restored Republic of France sought to prevent Vietnam leaving the French Empire. This First Indochina War would mirror, in many ways, the later American involvement in the country, as French forces and French-friendly Vietnamese forces, mostly in the south, fought the Viet Minh for control of the country. However, by 1954, the war-weary French wanted out of Vietnam after suffering a string of military defeats, and a political solution was desperately needed. At the Geneva Conference that same year, Vietnam was thus partitioned between the North, led by Ho Chi Minh and the Communists, and the South, led by a Western-friendly democratic government. There were vague statements and loose promises made about a potential future unification, but the reality was that after 1954, two Vietnams were now in existence on opposite sides of the emerging Cold War ideological battlefield. Both China and the USSR, communist countries, were keen to support the North as they saw that country as a bulwark against the spread of Western influence in Asia. As the 1950s progressed, the United States became more and more concerned about the potential for the spread of communism in Asia. North Vietnam was seen as the staging ground for a potential communist expansion, and the U.S. began to take more and more of an interest in protecting and supporting South Vietnam against that possibility. 
Effectively, the U.S. saw the South as a bulwark against the spread of communism, while the USSR and China saw the North as a bulwark against the spread of Western ideas. Particular to the United States, though, was the fear that were South Vietnam to fall to communism, it would trigger neighboring countries to also fall in quick succession. This anxiety or paranoia was referred to as the domino theory. Now, the U.S. was not without some justification for their concerns over communist agitation, as the Viet Minh were actively seeking to destabilize the South in preparation for eventual unification under the communist banner of the North. The Viet Minh were conducting this destabilization through a group known as the Viet Cong. So the Viet Cong were a North Vietnamese-backed insurgency that was operating actively in the South. Effectively, by the late 1950s, Vietnam had become the front line of the Cold War in Asia. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So where is Canada in all of this? Well, in order to facilitate a peaceful transition from a two-state Vietnam to a one-state Vietnam, the United Nations had set up an international control commission. The three countries on this commission were Canada, Poland, and India. Why these three countries, you ask? Well, Canada represented the West, Poland the Communist East, and India was officially non-aligned. But Canada was in a peculiar position as a member of the Western Bloc because Canadian leaders and diplomats believed that American military involvement in Vietnam was in fact a threat to world peace. You see, the Korean War in the early 1950s had sparked serious concerns amongst Canadian leaders about the potential for nuclear war if a conflict was to escalate. This was because, of course, General Douglas MacArthur's open advocacy for dropping a nuclear bomb on China when it intervened in the Korean War. With Canada geographically positioned right in the path of Soviet bombers delivering said atomic weapons, any outbreak of nuclear war was going to explicitly and immediately affect Canadians and Canadian soil. Remember, listeners, the bombing route for Soviet planes was not west to east, but over the North Pole thus traveling through Canadian airspace before delivering it to American soil. Thus, knowing this, the Canadian position was to use diplomacy to avoid escalation, escalation that could result in Canada being placed in the path of nuclear weapons. Now, on the other hand, Canada was one of America's most intimate allies. 
No two countries on the planet were as intertwined economically, culturally, and militarily as Canada and the United States. So while Canada wanted to avoid escalation, they also needed to back America's strong stance on supporting and maintaining a non-communist South Vietnam. Basically, being a member of the ICC as well as a committed member of the American-led Western Bloc often found Canada contradicting itself. How do you prevent escalation in Vietnam while also not upsetting your most important ally? Most Canadian officials and diplomats were well aware that the North was conducting and supporting destabilization efforts in the South, primarily through the Viet Cong. It's worth pointing out here that the North's official army was the People's Army of Vietnam, not the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong were primarily a guerrilla force, backed by the North Vietnamese government and military, primarily designed to operate in South Vietnam, with much of its personnel recruited from rural areas of the South. Now, Canada's position on the International Control Commission reflected how many Canadians viewed themselves and their country on a global stage. You see, by the early 1960s, many Canadian leaders viewed Canada as what they called a leading middle power. This is a uniquely confusing term that basically saw Canada as a leading nation amongst those nations not large enough or wealthy enough to play a primary role in the Cold War, yet large and wealthy enough to still have an influence, i.e. the middle powers. Its views of itself as a leading middle power was based on its unique relationship with the United States as well as its growing global reputation as a peacekeeping nation a people eager to mediate and to engage in peacekeeping efforts in international disputes. Canadian officials, in fact, felt that they were in a rather advantageous position in regards to the United States because it was felt that Canadian diplomats had the ear of the U.S. administration, a sort of intimate relationship that meant better access to U.S. officials. Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson, who had come to power in April of 1963, thus hoped to privately and quietly influence the direction of American policy towards Vietnam. Folks, I just want to take a quick second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon, Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time or on a monthly basis, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations per episode. So if you wanted to donate, say, two bucks or five bucks for every episode we publish, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on these donations, and every dollar is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to everyone that has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. 
In response to what was viewed as continued northern aggression, the U.S. began actively supporting South Vietnam's military forces. The U.S. sent over advisors, as well as money and material for the South Vietnamese government and military. Now, this was in direct contravention of the 1954 Geneva Conference, the conference where they partitioned Vietnam and established the Control Commission. So Canada, as a leading member of the Control Commission, was faced with a dilemma. As a member of it, do you publicly chastise the Americans for going against the Geneva Agreements? Or as America's ally, do you ignore American actions, thus discrediting the ICC and the United Nations? The Canadian position was one that sought a compromise to this dilemma. While Canada recognized that the Americans were indeed helping to build up the military capacity of the South, they also publicly recognized that this was in direct response to continued aggression from the North, which was being supported by both China and the USSR. Behind the scenes, Canadian diplomats worked feverishly attempting to convince the Americans to scale down their involvement in the region. It is probably no surprise to anyone that the Canadian efforts failed. It might, in fact, need to be said here that the whole idea of Canada having any special influence on the United States was a rather naive aspect of the leading middle power idea. The Americans were set on stopping the spread of communism through supporting the South. The Geneva Conventions be damned. Frankly, the International Control Commission had no teeth. The three members were generally non-cooperative, Canada seen as an American puppet, Poland being instructed by Moscow, and India generally favoring the Polish communist position. As well, the Control Commission had no mechanisms of enforcement. Whatever reports, conclusions, or recommendations the ICC put forth, there was no way it or the United Nations could make anybody abide. By 1963, it was obvious to all that things were escalating. The death of U.S. President John F. Kennedy and the swearing-in of Lyndon Johnson had done nothing to curb America's policy in the region. What President Johnson did want, however, was a go-between to carry messages back and forth between the U.S. administration and the North Vietnamese administration. Johnson wanted someone to carry a stern warning to the North, to warn them of the consequences of their continued support of the Viet Cong. For Johnson, the obvious choice was a Canadian, a diplomat who had already established a working relationship with the government in Hanoi. That man was J. Blair Seaborn. Toronto-born James Blair Seaborn had joined the Department of External Affairs back in 1948 and by the early 1960s was Canada's leading diplomat on the International Control Commission. In the spring of 1964, Seaborn was tasked with bringing an ultimatum to the North Vietnamese leadership. Back down or face the wrath of the United States. At the same time, Seaborn was instructed to gauge the mood of Hanoi, to give the Johnson administration a better understanding of the fighting temperament of the communist administration. 
The Seaborn Mission, as it came to be called, saw Seaborn go back and forth five different times, and the result was not positive. Hanoi was ready to fight, and the U.S. would not back down. At this point, peace seemed impossible. And indeed, peace was. In August of 1964, on the false pretext that an American vessel was fired upon in the Gulf of Tonkin, the United States officially sent in its military to help the South. By 1965, the Viet Cong and American troops were engaging each other in full combat. By spring of that same year, the Americans began conducting a sustained bombing campaign of the North, known as Operation Rolling Thunder. Prime Minister Pearson, former diplomat and Nobel Peace Prize winner, mind you, publicly rebuked the United States for Operation Rolling Thunder. He did this while giving a speech in Philadelphia. President Johnson was furious. The story goes that when Pearson met Johnson at Camp David, the day after Pearson's speech, Johnson angrily berated Pearson, even, so the story goes, grabbing Pearson by his lapels and yelling, you don't come into my house and piss on my rug. Prime Minister Pearson's speech was symptomatic of the complicated Canadian diplomatic position during this period. Advocates for peace, certainly, but constantly struggling with the demands of being a friend to their most important ally. Regardless, by 1965, the United States and North Vietnam were hunkering down for a long struggle, one that would see over a million Vietnamese killed, the United States eventually withdraw, and the communists finally achieve their goal of a unified communist Vietnam. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.